Welcome to Sportonomics, presented by Uncle Charlie. I'm Tyler Webb. And I'm Jake Kranz. And today, Jake, we'll be talking about the next evolution of golf and why it has nothing to do with live. We'll talk to Amanda Kristovich of Front Office Sports and break down everything that's been going on with the new NCAA 24 college football video game and what it reveals about the current state of NIL. And at the end, we're going to be selecting our one-of-one moments in sports that happened outside of the whistle. But first, the SEC and the Big Ten both just announced that starting in 2024, they'll be removing divisions from their conference scheduling. This means that at the end of the season, the two teams with the best records in each conference will play in the championship. And this change coincides with the addition of Texas and Oklahoma and the SEC and UCLA and USC in the Big Ten. Now, to me, Jake, this marks a transition into what I'm calling the second stage of college football. First, it was conference realignment, which I still don't think is quite over yet. And now second is optimizing scheduling for ratings. And I believe the third phase is going to be privatization, which is something we can talk about here in a second. But Mm -hmm. to this last point, I want to focus with you today on this privatization idea, because I think increasingly it's this business of college football that I think is becoming too big and can't really exist under the NCAA anymore. And this is something that we're actually going to talk about later in an interview with Amanda Kristovich of Front Office Sports about the new NCAA video game. But Jake, what do you think is the logical endpoint for college football here, given the way things are trending? Ooh, uh, can we can we can we scale it back a little bit? Can we start with what the heck is happening right now with the the um, division realignments, then also the restructuring of the playoff format before sure, we jump into the long term? Because I I think yeah. I think we're on the same page and and. Uh, on the, the the longer term version of it, and I think I'm just latching on to your ideology on that because I I agree that that is the path that it's going to take. I just don't know how we're going to get to that path. So let's let's work towards that. Um, okay. So let's start with the division realignment. So um, as a lot of people have seen, a lot of the divisions have been or the the conferences have have been shaken up. Um, the this 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 happening across all of sports, not just football. Um, as a as a Minnesota Gopher hockey fan, the legendary WCHA was a big thing, um, and had pretty much every single best school west of Pennsylvania within it. And now there's obviously the Big Ten, and there's the NCHC, and several different uh, hockey only conferences. Uh, and you see the same thing happening in football. Um, Big Ten is still a good example of that. Uh, SEC is a good example. Uh, you look at what UCLA and USC did, they're really good examples of that. Um, and a lot of these decisions are primarily being driven by money uh, and which conferences are going to lead to these schools creating the biggest amount of budget surplus that they can for themselves, which is all good and fine. Um, yeah. I, I, I guess for the the restructuring of the in-conference playoffs, I think it makes total sense. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, it's been weird to me for a while, like why, why they've wanted to have a conference playoff that doesn't teach the two best schools. Like in the Big Ten, as an example, it should pretty much always be Ohio State and Michigan, <laughs> right? But they're in the same <laughs> and, conference, so right, right, which would, right, and and it's actually from a financial perspective in the best interest of all the schools for the best two schools to play. Like they, 
they they are all benefiting from the ratings of 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 these games um now from like a a long-term perspective for the betterment of a local program like if the gophers are playing the big 10 championship just because they're the the best in the west and they had one more win than iowa and their what whatever it was seven and five or seven and six whatever their record was sure um great like i'll i'll watch the gophers in the big 10 championship game but i know they're going to get run over by ohio state um yeah. so that, i mean that's that's the point i want to drill in on because uh, you're right the the reason this realignment is happening is because there's huge revenue distributions at stake here you know the the big mm-hmm. 10 is reported to be making currently 70 million dollars per school per year from their media deal and when their new one gets uh, gets signed with cbs or, or goes into action with cbs starting next year uh, the revenue distributions are reported to be as high as 10 million dollars per school so we're talking big money and obviously as you consolidate the top programs at the very top this these con- these tv contracts are just going to get bigger and bigger right and, yeah and I, that's, I, I, I do th- yeah that, i mean that's why like a ucla or usc would want to to move over like they're 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 playing with the island of missing toys and if they're able to latch onto the media deal or brand recognition of teams that already are dominant like why not do that yeah and, and i equated it to when we had all this realignment you were just kind of setting up the pieces on the chessboard all these conferences sort of saw the impending wave that was going to come of schools being shaken up so it was kind of a hey we're just going to grab the best schools and we'll figure out how they fit into these divisions or you know how they fit into our conference later on and i think now we're entering this stage two in which they're realizing okay yeah there's been sort of a lull in realignment you haven't seen a lot of schools moving conferences recently and so now they're having to optimize for what i think is going to be the most important aspect of this phase two which is how do we get the best ratings out of these schools that have just joined our conference and i think eliminating conferences or eliminating divisions rather is going to be one of those ways to say you know what we don't want we want, you know, we want to be able to see UCLA and USC possibly play each other. We want to be able to see Michigan and Ohio State possibly play each other because as you, I think, get to what is probably going to be like three or four really premier college football conferences in the country, you're going to be battling out against some serious titans for having the best ratings. And I think the Big Ten saw what the SEC did when they stripped divisions and they said that's going to give them the best shot to get the best ratings. And the next time their TV deal comes up, they're going to be able to cash in more than we're able to cash it. And they wanted to be able to play on that level playing field and say, no, we want to be able to you know, cash in and, and compete with them in, in terms of ratings. And I think that's really what's driving all of this. Um, I think as we look forward, though, you have to look at as these contracts get so big, again, we're talking about billions of dollars being shelled out mm-hmm. for individual mm-hmm. college sports. Do you think there ever exists a world, Jake, where these programs, these college football programs exist outside of the amateurism university model? I, I think we're nearing a tipping point, And I think only as we continue to consolidate talent of programs in one, two, three, four different conferences, are we going to see that get to the point where we say, all right, we, we can't just fake like this is a an amateur level sport anymore yeah i think this becomes the biggest private competitor of the xfl and the direct feeder program into the nfl like it already it already is a feeder program in the nfl um in a somewhat formal somewhat informal capacity like the nfl isn't super involved in college football they just say hey like you know when the draft is we'll see you there um we can help facilitate getting our scouts out to your your pro days but other than that just do what you do here's the rules that we're going to be 
be testing out if you guys want to test out your own rules that's that's all good and fine also um but i think that you and i are both aligned in the thinking that at some point these college programs are going to have so much regional power um both in terms of like the actual region that they're in uh for from like a fan perspective but also in terms of the power that they have within their their own college like they're a huge huge line item for a lot of their colleges not only athletic departments but also like the 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 broader budget for the entire university and who's to say like we get 10 15 years down the road and Alabama football is like you know what I think we want to privatize and maybe we could be the feeder program for the New England Patriots and be the second tier of football uh, in North America and then maybe that makes high school football slide into this interesting slot that is the amateur pool that players are pulling from or maybe there's uh, college football that that still exists that is um, still amateur but is just far inferior to what you'd be getting at the Alabamas um, right. of, of of the current college football landscape so I think that, that there is definitely a potential for that to happen the transition has already started with all the NIL stuff and like it's difficult to know exactly what conversations are being had and where the money is coming from for a lot of these athletes at the bigger bigger programs but i think it would be ludicrous to say that the nil rules have not accelerated the rate at which athletes are able to get money from their schools oh, sure whether it's whether it's for like their their name image and likeness or 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 just the talent that they have on the field like they're this this just opened up ways for universities to to pay them yeah, and I think that question of how universities pay and what that relationship is between essentially employee and employer, although that's not how that relationship is codified yet in the law, is what this, you know that's what is hinging this decision on whether these are amateurs that get to exist in this collegiate structure under the NCAA or whether it becomes like you described a competitor to the XFL, a lower level professional league of football that is also separate from the universities. Um, I'll keep preluding our conversation or my conversation rather with Amanda later in this episode, but I want to like talk through some of the incentive structures of college football becoming completely private or not completely private. The Mm -hmm. the first one that sticks out to me, again, coming back to this idea that it's going to hinge on whether or not the athletes are considered professionals. And if they are considered professionals, then theoretically they'll have to enter onto their school's payroll or, you know, what would be their schools at the time. Their, Their team will have to start paying them directly. It'll no longer be like, this weird roundabout way where a quote unquote collective can pay a player, but you can still, you know, yeah. offer them an amount of money like you're like you're basing it off a of payroll. Like it would just become what is the NFL, the NBA, the NFL, or the MLB, where there's a salary cap, right? And you have to manage your payroll, manage your roster, knock over a certain amount of money. Um, I think once that happens, that would obviously be great for the players. I think it'll be less great for the schools. They benefit hugely from this amateurism. Uh, veneer where they don't have to pay what would be their biggest cost, which is their employees, right? They, they have to pay coaches, obviously, they have to pay staff, but their their biggest cost, if it came down to it, would be having to play the pay the 53 people on their roster. And in college football, it's, it's much higher than that. But, you know, I'm curious, Jake, like, what would be the benefit for these universities to go off and, and privatize? Because in all the research I'm doing, they'd have to start paying players that they don't have to do right now. 
they would probably get cut off of the IV drip that is public funding that helps them mm-hmm. run their program. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there is enough pull for these schools, like speaking specifically the big Alabama, Georgia's, Ohio states of the world to say, hey, we're going to remove ourselves from the NCAA and become private? Like, what would be the point for them doing that? Yeah, let's look, look, let's, let's, let's look at the extreme first. So program like Alabama, they don't need the public funding of the university to be uh, financially sustainable on their own. Right. They'll be fine. Uh, so on the very high end of the spectrum, that is likely the case for a lot of the biggest schools. Sure. And then I think the assumption that you're making about them having to play, pay the salary of the players, um, I'd be open to the idea of that not being the reality. I think there's a way for the quote-unquote um, affiliate team, if you look at Major League Baseball structure, to pay the salaries of the players. So instead of... Um, instead of the college program having to pay for all the the food all the per diems all of the the training the facilities etc like that gets passed on to the the organization that they're partnered with at the nfl level and so let's just use the alabama and new england patriots example like maybe the patriots are paying for the salary of all the players um and they're also helping subsidize all the other operations that are happening on the player development side while the team Alabama is only focused on the day-to-day operations of the organization uh on site there so like selling tickets to games uh that's great you can do that but uh everything else is just taken care of by the NFL team it's interesting how you're trying to like square this in the context of the NFL it's something I haven't really considered and I do think it's probably important like how a privatized college football model looks in relation to the NFL well, I, I just don't know. know. I, I don't know, like, why you would do it if that was not the case. Like, what, 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 what is, what is the pathway? I mean, because it's like what's a multi, logic for it's, you? It's a multi-billion-dollar business in and sure. of itself. You know, if sure. you look at these contract deals, these sponsorship deals, these ticket revenues, like, if if you just took the financial of a college football team like Alabama just out of the university, that would be a hundred million to a billion-dollar organization, all things considered. It'd be probably sure. valued at ten plus billion dollars. So. I think the the point there is like they would then be removed from the strictures that are universities and that are the NCAA. Like I agree that NIL has removed a lot of barriers that existed before to like recruit athletes and have athletes operate as like these quality professionals. Like you know, athletes have been getting paid forever, right? There there have been incentives, whether illegal or legal, to get athletes to come to your school and to play for your school and to stick around and, and what have you. I agree that with the transfer portal and with NIL, those a lot of those guardrails have been stripped away. But at the same time, these schools still have to like jump through hoops. You know, players got to go to class. Um, they have to follow certain NCAA guidelines. We, we've seen the NCAA bring down violations that don't fit under what they assume to be the legal, you know, guardrails of NIL. And so, yeah. so there still are some complications that are brought about when you talk yeah. about college athletics as they exist today. And I think the benefit is they get to remove themselves completely from completely from that and treat these athletes as professionals. Yeah, I, I think I get what you're saying. I think this is a very similar thing that we're going to talk about in, in in the topic that I want to bring up bring up next. So I don't want to jump into that just yet. But I think that there is a world where it, it, it it's converted into a, a private company, but it's wholly owned by the nonprofit, which is the school. And the reason that they would do that is because it allows them the freedom to basically do whatever they want within that private company that they might not necessarily be allowed to do 
as a public university, right? So like you look at University of Alabama, at the end of the day, they have a oblig an obligation to the students that go to the school, to the community that is supported by that university um, to continue to push the mission of that, uh, that, that school forward and that university forward based off of whatever they have within their school's bylaws and all the different things that they need to do on the school side of things. But you spin it off as a, a, a private company and you say, all right, well, you give us a $100 million check every year to, to, to fund back into the school. You guys do what you want on the football side. I, I could yeah. care less. I, I think it is really similar to like the academy structure that exists for professional soccer across mm. Across the pond, where mm. you have these institutions that are set up, and in, in, in this example, they are set up directly underneath a professional yeah. team. Bar um, FC Barcelona is an example, exactly. And and I, I'll still push back on your idea that that would exist between the college football and the NFL, but I do think there is a world where these are set up essentially like academies, where mm. the understood primary purpose is for you to play the sport and develop at the sport that you're best at. But but you kind of also go to school. There is an educational <laughs> component to it, right? And, and I. Like, I don't think if college football privatized, I don't think right away or maybe even 15 years after that decision, college athletics would look entirely different. I think the big mechanism that would change would be how they're funded and who oversees them or more importantly, who doesn't oversee them. Mm -hmm. And it, the college football has always played this interesting like half in half out game anyway, where they want to govern themselves. Like you look at the NCAA does not put on the college football playoff. It is, or it was originally the BCS that decided all the bowl games and then by computer algorithm decided the national championship. And now it's the college football playoff committee that is comprised of executives and, and uh, officials from the schools themselves that get to decide who makes the playoffs, they'll you know, organize it, they'll do everything like that. And the NCAA sanctions the event and the NCAA organizes all college football events underneath the division one level. But for some reason, college football had enough leverage to say the NCAA, we want you out of our business when we're trying to decide on our own playoff or bowl games or, or what have you. So, so there's always been this really inter interesting intersection of, of private and public when it comes to college sports. I think my entire ethos of bringing this up is saying that that line gets a little blurry between who's paying for this sport that could feasibly exist on its own and what is even the benefit of it existing in this weird public-private merger where why don't we just totally separate and say you exist as your own private entity college football and we can still support you and it can even still be structured in a similar way where athletes go to school but it's easier on you and it's just easier on all the rest of us to understand like you know where our money is going essentially yeah my stomach doesn't feel good after this conversation i just i, I want college football to just be college football and, and that's it but i think the reality of it is it is it has changed um, right and it will continue to change and there's going to be a new steady state that's found probably 10 or 15 years from now that is way different than mm -hmm. what the world currently looks like for, for college football. We, we, we will never have another Tim Tebow-esque college football vibe, I don't think. No, and maybe not. And I, I think what you're describing is like this singular idea of what college football used to be where you know we were all really excited about one player, one team, one run. Um, I, I don't think a lot of that is going to change. I think there will still be these core brands at colleges and college football has increasingly become a regionalized sport anyway where you have the top five to ten brands and those are the ones people pay attention to and while the regular season is going on maybe you pay attention to your local team but at the end of the year when the top five to ten brands are still around those are the teams that you end up paying attention to those are the bowl games those are the events those are the 
you know, the, the structures of being the college football playoff that we all pay attention to. So I don't think a lot of that's going to change. You know, I just worry for the athletes where we exist currently in this middle ground between them being professionals and them being amateurs. Yeah, they, they get the worst of both worlds where they're still considered amateurs, but they can be paid. So people say, well, you can be paid. So you don't have to you know, shut up. Why are you complaining? But at the same time, they're not technically considered professionals. They don't get granted all the same rights that other professional athletes do, which is mm-hmm. being able to unionize, being able to negotiate in a collective way. And I, I think that really hurts them. So I just think college football is in a transition period, Jake. And I, I think you, you probably mentioned that, but we're just trying to figure out how this all gets sorted out. And it seems like as we transition and as we're sitting in this middle ground, we're leaning closer to the professionalized side of college athletics and leaning further away from it being just an amateur sport. And I guess you can have your opinions on what that means. I, I think that's probably exciting and, and probably ends up with a, with a better product and one that's just a little bit more pure football. But I, I do understand that missing the nostalgia of like, a, you know, what was college football as we remembered it in the you know, mid 2000s. We shall see. We shall see. We shall see. Speaking of transitions, I think this is a great opportunity to transition into the next topic, which is oddly similar, but in a completely different sport. So this is this is um, the next evolution of this PGA Tour saga that we've been seeing play out over the course of the last month. This sport is also in a transition period, um, and this organization is a transition period, and a lot of that has been driven by Live Golf, but I think there's been a really a sneaky, interesting thing that's been happening in the background that um, hasn't really been drawing a lot of attention to itself that is probably a large part of the reason as to why they would actually go through that merger with Live Golf and the private privatization of the PGA Tour. So this week, Fenway Sports Group um, is their an ownership group. They own the the Red Sox, the Pittsburgh Penguins. I think they, they own a soccer team. I think it's I think I might own Manu. I can't remember what the actual soccer team is, but um, one, one of the soccer teams over in Europe. And they just bought the rights to the Boston team in the TGL Golf League, which is a league that was started by Tiger Woods and, and Rory McIlroy through their um, venture-backed company tomorrow, Sports or TMRW, which is like it's just Tiger's and Rory's initials um, combined into a single word. Um, but they, so they did this and this week, and it just it, it had me thinking uh, that golf is really just looking for a way to privatize what they do to create a larger financial vehicle for themselves. And so you you saw that play out in the PGA Tour Live Golf merger. So they they were able to privatize on 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 that side of things, and it opened them up to an inflow of cash of like upwards of, of billions of dollars that they'll be able to get from the, the Saudis. Um, what it also allows them to do is it allows them to focus on investments that are outside of golf. Um, we, we talked about this a little bit two or three weeks ago when we were talking about MLB Advanced Media and what they did in the early 2000s with the creation of the private partnership uh, across all of their their team members to create MLB Advanced Media and that which which turned into a multi-billion dollar organization, which was later divvied up and, and sold out to Disney. Um, and I think that, that golf is, is trying to do the same thing here. Um, they, they have a, um, a moral and fiduciary responsibility to focus on their mission of just being the PGA 
And so creating a private entity that is allowed to do pretty much whatever it wants is probably a really attractive thing for an organization like this. And so I guess I just want to get get your take on two things. Uh, first thing is now that we're a few weeks into the PGA and Live merger, how are you feeling about it? Is your stomach still churning? And then second, secondarily, like, what do you, do you, do you th- do you agree with my logic or am I crazy? So I'll answer your first question first. I think the PGA screwed itself and exposed that they have a chink in their armor which is if you are committed to spending more money than we feel comfortable with spending over a course of 18 months, we will cave to your every demand. And obviously there's a bit of a different moral quandary when you consider TGL and uh, the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour, but I I think the outcomes are the same. So what you had, and and Jake, you described this really well last time we talked about why Live you know, ended up merging or, or why Live even existed in, in the first place. And you laid out that they were comfortable either A, spending as much money as they needed to to drive the PGA out of business, or B, they were just going to fold into the PGA because they wanted to get to the negotiating table. And the quickest way to do that was posturing like they were willing to spend more money than PGA Golf was comfortable spending and get them to submit and effectively say, hey, we wave the white, white flag, we give up, we'll, we'll finally come to the negotiating table with you. And the fact that the PGA set that standard, that if you're willing to just outlast them or attempt to outlast them, that they'll come to the negotiating table with you strips all of their leverage. So this isn't me saying that TGL is trying to fold into what the PGA is doing. I think another part of this that was exploited in, in, the, in the merger was that there's a lot of room for innovation in golf. For a very long time, the PGA had a monopoly over what professional golf would look like. Live Golf came in with interesting formats, different distribution methods. Um, different payment structures and said, we want to make golf look different. And again, you can talk about where that money's coming from, from a moral perspective, but they changed the model of what professional golf had been like for decades. And it made the PGA uncomfortable enough to where they were willing to come to the negotiating table and likely integrate a lot of those changes that Live Golf implemented. And I think TGL is in a similar position where they, one, recognize that, okay, we're venture back. If we're willing to spend more money than the PGA is willing to spend to compete with them, they might submit and let us come to the negotiating table, purchase us, invest in us, do something to help us continue to exist or just buy us outright. Or secondly, uh, there is an opportunity for golf to be shaken up. And I think, again, what this has revealed is that people are hungry for a different structure of golf. People are hungry for more drama in golf. And I think this TGL structure is a way for golf to innovate in a way that it hasn't been able to in the past. And I think it's probably better than what Liv was even proposing to do because it's so different from what golf has traditionally looked like. It's taking a much bigger swing, in my opinion. And I I think that could result in even greater successes than what Liv was even able to accomplish when going up against the PGA. So I just don't don't understand why they would do it if it weren't only for fear. Like there has to be some type of strategic advantage that they see uh, with within the, the the deals that they're doing in order to benefit the PGA. Like there's got to be a reason for them to do this outside of just we were worried that they were going to take over all of professional golf. It's literally uh, an organization that had been around for a year versus one that's been around for over 100 years. And they had yeah. like they had the the financial runway to to weather a, a storm of like at least probably 10 more years without it becoming a major issue for them. 
and they still had, I think, the majority of the best talent in the world. Um, like there had to have been something in here more than just we were worried that they would actually just spend us out of business, but maybe not. Yeah, I mean, I think it could come back to something that I have talked a lot about, which is the PGA's desire to reestablish a monopoly in golf. They were obviously in a compromised position, not only because there was a competitor that was backed by the Saudis and had unlimited money in live golf, but also because it forced them to finally change a lot of structures that had benefited them for a really long time. And folding in with the Saudis not only prevents them from these lawsuits that they were facing and not only prevents them from burning cash that they had to spend to compete with the Saudis, but it also now allows them to regain control mm. over what golf will look like on a global stage. And it's quite possible that they wanted to get their arms around this too. And <laughs> to me, this looks like nipping something in the bud more than it looks like fully embracing you know what could be the future i i do think there's a, a pr spin that you can put on this which is the pga is forward thinking and investing in its players and investing in new tech that can enable golf for everybody blah 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 blah, blah. you probably heard all the jargon and i'm sure that's pretty much how they're spinning it but i think at the end of the day it's just them making sure that they have at least one to one of their many tentacles on what could be an emerging competitor down the line um and, and they just might want to get ahead of this one yep Hard to argue with that. I think they they definitely want to have the monopoly that they've benefited from over the last hundred years, and uh, there's there's no no real way to argue against that. Um, have you have you are you aware of what this TGL thing is, the golf league? Uh, on a very base level, I, I'd love for you to explain it to me a little. Bit. Well, I wish I could. So I okay. so. Are podcasting by us? No, 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 no. And the, the reason I say that is because I actually did a lot of research into it, and I still have no idea what it is. Like, mm -hmm. like so they they are launching the uh, next January, I think, and they're building this this new facility, and it's all going to be done within this facility. And all they've been doing so far, similar to like this, the Live Golf PGA Tour stuff, is posturing. Like they they just said like. This is the new age of golf. This is the way that we're going to bring in the next generation of golfers. This is how the the youth are going to be getting involved. This is what is going to become the pinnacle of live action and live entertainment within golf. It's going to be tech infused. It's all going to be in one facility. It's going to be the best golfers. There's going to be teams. I still don't know what it is. And I've been trying to figure it out, and I can't. Like The only thing that they have public are a few interviews with the CEO of the company, um, and then they, they did one with Rory and they did one with another individual. I can't remember who the second individual was. And then they also have like a screenshot of like a rendering of what the inside of the facility is going to look like. And I can't figure it out. Like there is a, there's essentially like a screen on one side. And then there's also like a, like a turf green and rough on the other side within the facility. And I just I, I'm trying to figure out like what the heck is going on with with that? Is it the are you playing the same hole 18 times? Like what's 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 the deal? Are you just moving moving golf indoors? So I don't know what's going on, and I've spent a ton of time trying to figure it out. I think everything that you just described, and I this is not personal against you, but it's like you're throwing buzzwords and jargon at me. It, it seems like that's how the PGA is thinking about this tour. No, that's all it that's is. How the tour is thinking about itself, which is how can we wrap in as many futuristic Gen Z sounding 
terms into one ball and then try to put it in front of some people who say they want to innovate around golf, which is a traditionally pretty archaic sport, and then value it at this ridiculously high amount with without any basis on any fundamentals, but just because we make it sound really cool. That's essentially what it is. And maybe to the point about why the PGA would even be involved in this thing, maybe they are okay keeping this kind of golf at an arm's length. They still want to have a, a grasp on it, but they also want to keep it away from what is their core product, which is very brand friendly, like like really high end consumer brand friendly. Um, it's really posh and it's really well refined, right? That's sort of the been the brand of the PGA for a while. And then there's this new younger focus thing that maybe they don't want to tarnish the existing brand they have, but they also understand that it could be an important play to bring in that younger audience down the line. So they're just going to let it exist as this like conglomeration of all things that they assume young people want to exist in golf. And if it works great, then they get the benefit of it. But if it doesn't work, then it's something that they've been able to keep at a distance as to not hurt their own brand. And I, I do think there are a lot of benefits that could come out of this one report that I saw was all the players will be mic'd up and there'll be some fun, yeah, as you I described, think, team elements. To I it. Think so it's like it the right way. It's they're just trying to extrapolate all of the different, you know, social clips and, and, and trending aspects of what makes certain leagues really successful. And I'm skeptical if you can create a league just around what seems to be like the, you know, four pinnacles of a successful social strategy for other sports leagues. But maybe they'll find a way to tie it all together in a way that's actually really like comprehensive and has depth to it. It isn't just like I'll use this comparison. Like, you know how you see like this masked singer on TV mm -hmm. and you look at that and you're like, who actually watches that? I actually, it so, so there's like, a good point. I don't watch the Mass Singer on TV. I do not see it, but I know what you're talking about because I saw a clip from Gronk. Yeah. And so it's like, that's kind of my point. It's like a show that seems to be completely derived for 30 second to three minute long clips for Facebook and YouTube and TikTok and Twitter. And it seems like that's the purpose of the show. It's not for somebody to sit down for 24 minutes and watch it on linear television. And so that they can get three to five viral clips out of that time and promote the show that way. And it, it seems to me like this is the same way they're approaching TGL, which is maybe the long form product of this isn't super important. Maybe it's not important that these teams have depth and that their storylines built around what the league is and that their stakes built in. Maybe all that's important is we get Tiger Woods saying something really that's, funny on Mike once a week. And yes. that's all it is. So this could just be the mass singer of golf. And I think it benefits the PGA to keep it close, but more more so, it benefits them to keep it at an arm distance. Yeah, the, the the ownership group doesn't really make sense to me on it, but I think for the sport of golf, it's incredible. Like like this is what this is what golf needs from a short form perspective. Um, I think I think it's much easier to get away with doing a lot of short form stuff here and build personalities of some of the best golfers in the world using this as a hub. I think they're doing everything that they can the right way here. Like they have one facility, so they're not. There's, they're, they're not traveling from place to place to place. There's no variables there. They'll have um, the same game, theoretically, happening every single time. They'll be able to build around all the infrastructure from a, a content perspective into this one system that they have so they don't have to create something new every single time they go to a different location. They don't have to worry about any connectivity issues because they'll have all of that sorted on site there. Um, but it doesn't really make sense that since that's a venture back company that's doing this, I, like I think I think it would make sense if the PGA did it because it's a really great funnel into the rest of golf and it's a great like side property for them. But I'm sure they'll, like they'll be able to figure it out. They'll be able to get funding from from somebody where it makes sense and maybe maybe it comes from a broadcast network like maybe the Golf Channel decides, hey, we need more content. Good way to get more content.
It's, it's one of these things that if you and I had this idea, we'd be laughed out of a room and people would say it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But since it's backed by Rory, since it's backed by Tiger, since it's backed by the PGA, I think it's going to have enough contrived momentum to work in some capacity. And again, it might not work beyond a couple funny social clips from a Tiger Woods mic'd up moment. But if that's all they're trying to get out of it, which I'm increasingly convinced that it is, then maybe they can manufacture enough momentum to make it work. All right, let's now bring on our guest, Amanda Kristovich. For those of you who haven't been following this story, EA Sports and a number of NIL group licensing collectives are embroiled in a lawsuit over the new NCAA 24 video game. The college football video game is currently set to be released next summer. It would be the first of its kind game since NCAA 14, a lot of people's favorites, but questions over athletic comp athlete compensation, rather, and who has the rights to represent these athletes have risen to a point where the game might not even come out at all. Amanda has been doing some excellent reporting for this topic for Front Office Sports, and she walks me through the entire debacle that has been licensing a new college football game, and we talk about what it means for the future of NIL. Enjoy. Amanda, thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to talk about this whole NCAA 24 lawsuit. You've been somebody that I've been following their coverage of the most. I think you've had the best beat on this. For people that maybe aren't aware or haven't been following the story as closely, can you give us a brief rundown on the events that have transpired to get us to what hopefully is an NCAA video game release next summer, but is increasingly seeming unlikely. Yeah. Um, I'll try to give you like the short version that is essentially a little over a decade. Well, actually well over a decade of history. Um, so EA started making college football and basketball games in 1998 um, with players. I'm sure some of your listeners, viewers have played those games. Um they're kind of like a cool relic now because in uh, 2009, a UCLA basketball player filed a lawsuit against the NCAA and EA basically saying, hey, um, I'm his name was Ed O'Bannon. He's like, hey, I'm represented in the EA college basketball game. Clearly me. And no one's paying me to be represented in the game. Fast forward five years. Um, there was a federal court ruling that said he was right. Um, EA cannot make video games with athletes represented in them without paying them. The problem is, is that the NCAA didn't allow for NIL rights at the time. Um, so basically the games went away. And that's why the last like EA college football game was in 2014, for example. Um, sure. Fast forward to 2021, NIL rights become a thing. Um, NCAA changes its rules. EA says, hey, we're going to make a college football game and there might be players. Between then and now, EA's like, yes, we are going to have players and we're going to pay them to be in our college football game. But over the last few weeks, reports have come out about the how much EA is paying the players or planning to pay them. Um, and multiple organizations have come out saying that they're not going to be paid fair market value. And one of those companies, which represents schools in group licensing deals, which is like the phrase um, used to describe deals where like a school's intellectual property and an athlete's intellectual property are bundled for one product, um, came out and said, hey, uh, not only do we not think this deal is fair, but you didn't, EA didn't include us in the negotiating process. Um for the 54 schools that we have contracts with that are going to be represented in this game. So we're going to sue you. And uh, that's where we are now. 
Sure. I, I think there's a lot to unpack, especially as you talked about in the last couple of weeks, all these lawsuits that have transpired. I want to go all the way back. You talk about this being a, a decades old fight. Like, what is your understanding of the sentiment? Because it, it seems weird that it took one guy to sort of topple this entire complex that was college athletes getting represented without them getting paid for their name, image, and likeness. Was this like a pervasive sentiment that athletes felt like they were getting shafted in a sense because they weren't being compensated for being in the video game? Or was it kind of a, you went along to get along because it was cool that you were in a video game in the first place? Yeah, it's funny um, because there's a great book about this called Indentured um, about sort of the rise of the college athlete compensation advocacy movement like writ large. But essentially, um, it was like a group of advocates and economists who kind of realized that this was unfair um and they actually went looking for players who would be willing to join the lawsuit and mm-hmm. is my understanding and ed o'bannon the former ucla basketball player signed on as the named plaintiff um and you know because he was a prominent player at the time and um when it was brought to his attention that he could be paid for something that he wasn't being paid for, he was like, ooh, I think I'd like to be paid. Sure. Uh, and and the sentiment sort of turned with the lawsuit, right? As athletes started to understand what name, image, and likeness as a concept is, what intellectual property rights as a concept are, um, the sentiment started to shift pretty rapidly. Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting piece in there. You talk about how and I've read this, and it might have been through your work, that EA at the time was willing to pay athletes for their participation in the video game. And it was essentially the NCAA that came out and said, we're not allowing you to pay our athletes. So it was the NCAA that put their foot down and said, no, 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 this transactional relationship can't happen. And as you describe, it went on for years until 2021. The Supreme Court finally ruled that athletes could monetize based off their name, image, or likeness. What is your take on you know, why the NCAA was so stubborn around that topic for so long, because this is something that I brought up. It's not even like these schools are now beholden to paying these athletes as employees. They're, the money is not coming from the schools, which comprise the, the NCAA. So there seems to be no relationship that the NCAA should even have an issue with. But for so long, they did have an issue with athletes being able to monetize their name, image, or like this. What, what is your understanding of why it took so long for us to even get to this point? Yeah, so a few things um, I would love to just touch on. So, yes, you're correct. EA, so EA did their original contracts with the NCAA and the conferences Mm. and the schools, right? Because that's, because at the time, the NCAA claimed they owned the rights to athletes' name, image, and likeness. So, like, because athletes would actually sign those rights away when they Mm -hmm. would become NCAA athletes. Every person in this country has the right to their name, image, and likeness. Athletes would sign it away as part of their, um, you know, like papers that they signed when they got to keep Sure. Um, so EA, yeah, it's like EA was willing to pay whoever legally had the rights to those things. At the time, NCAA claimed it was them. Obviously, the courts ruled differently. Um, and then I also just want to point out that in, it, there is this really common discrepancy. So in the, there was a Supreme Court ruling in 2021 over athlete compensation. It wasn't actually what made NIL legal, quote-unquote. Okay. NIL um, was going to happen either way. Basically, the NCAA had, had decided that they were going to change their rules because um, state laws started saying, in our state, the NCAA legally is not allowed to prohibit NIL. Okay. 
the connection to the lawsuit is that the lawsuit was over like how much how many benefits schools could give athletes as part of like their package right and the legalese of that basically said that um as it relates to any athlete compensation the NCAA does not have a lot of authority to to limit this to regulate it or whatever which is why the NCAA's they waited for this decision to come out to see how strict their NIL rules could be, realized they could not be strict, and that's when they changed the rules. Um, now, going answering your question, sure. Uh, the NCAA has a very had a very tight grip on the concept of amateurism. It's the business model that makes the entire industry work which is that you pay everybody but the players right the players are not professionals so they don't get salaries they don't get workers compensation they're not entitled to any rights afforded to any employees in the united states okay the concern with nil was that if you give athletes nil rights they might look more like professionals which could start to chip away at that amateurism model, even though logically the average student has the right to their name, image, and likeness. They don't sign it away, right? Like I wasn't an athlete. I was just a student. I could use my NIL as I saw fit. Sure. Um, so in a way, it's making them more like regular students. But the NCAA was concerned about that. And then they were also, you know, there were a bunch of other straw man arguments that I won't bore you with, but... Essentially, they just want to make sure that they maintain amateurism, the concept that the schools don't pay the players to be employees. And they were concerned NIL was going to change that. Understood. At the very end, I do want to come back around and, and touch on some of your opinions on NIL as it currently stands. But I, I want to take us into this conversation of where we're at present day, because I think there's some really interesting themes that any smart person can pull out where the NCAA was very protective over that concept of amateurism because it afforded them control over the athletes and allowed them to play middleman essentially between uh, the EA in this instance and the athletes who I think we could all agree were the rightfully the individuals that should have been getting paid right the the NCAA was acting as as middleman to be able to take at the time what was all of the all of the money that was rightfully deserved to the athletes I think that's a trend that seems like carries us into present day when you talk about these NIL licensing groups that want to sit in between EA again and now the athletes to get them opted into being a part of the video game. And that, it, uh, my understanding is, and based on your writing, that that is what this lawsuit is primarily based on. It's not about this idea that the athletes are getting paid below fair market value, but yet again, there's another group attempting to insert themselves in between the athletes and the people that are trying to pay the athletes. So with, with that in mind, you know, where are we at today with these lawsuits? Yeah, so... It's a really interesting situation that has arisen. Um, I would like it, it. It's a power vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. Because when NIL, um, the NIL rules changed in 2021, the NCAA officials were like, there will not be group licensing deals. Okay. There will not be jersey deals. There will not be video game deals. The reason that they said this was because in the pros, all those deals are negotiated by players' unions. College athletes don't have a players union because they're not professionals. Therefore, group licensing is not possible. Companies like the Brandar Group, which is the um, the plaintiff in the lawsuit, and One Team Partners, which is the company that EA contracted, came in to the space and said, actually, that's not true. We can negotiate 
these deals. We can facilitate them. We quote unquote represent athletes. Okay. They're not athletes agents. They say they represent athletes. Neither of them technically officially like they're not their agents. They're not their agents. Sure. But they said, we are on behalf of the players and the schools. We're going to go to these companies. We're going to help them facilitate these deals. Right. And instead of being something that collectively the athletes sign on to like they would with a player a player's union would do for them they're opt-in so in the case of ea athletes will have the opportunity one by one to opt into whatever deal ea and one team decide to offer okay and that is very it's well, it's like the athletes don't have a seat at the table. The athletes don't have a seat at the table in that context. Right. In the beginning, it was considered a good thing because it was like, oh, we can do group licensing. There's a way around this issue of no union. Great. But now what's becoming clear is, yes, group licensing, some is better than none, but they're still not getting paid their fair market value. And this is not the first time this has happened, by the way. The Fanatics FBS football jersey situation last fall like 4,000 jerseys or 4,000 athletes were represented in a deal that one team partners also did. And the players were getting paid way below market standard for their royalties for those jerseys, right? And it's going to be similar similar here. The reports are suggesting that EA isn't going to be offering any royalties, which is where the money is for when you're represented in a football game. That mm-hmm. initial check that you get is not really a big deal. What you want is the royalties, Um And even though EA has said, well, that's just speculation, they also have not disputed that they're not planning to offer royalties. So just wanted to put that out there. Sure. In this power vacuum, as you describe it, who gives a one team partners or the Brander Group, which is the plaintiff in this new lawsuit, the permission to essentially wedge themselves in between players and EA? Because it seems like, as you describe, there's a power vacuum, but all of a sudden it's I think of the Michael Scott just declaring bankruptcy, like the fact that they just say that they now represent athletes seems to be good enough for them to squarely put themselves in the middle and obviously get a piece of the pie of the you know, the money that's flowing between the athletes and EA. So is there a group, does the NCAA have a part in this to say, yes, you can represent athletes or are they just saying that themselves? They're kind of saying that themselves and they're kind of not. So like with the case of one team, they do deals in the pros for group licensing. Is they have a track record, you know, okay. well, right? So they have a track record, and so does Brandar Group, sort of being able to facilitate these sorts of more complicated partnerships. So in this case, EA went to one team and said, hey, we want you to create this offer, right? It's an offer to athletes. One team said, okay, right? Brandar Group has relation. they sign contracts with schools, And so those contracts say, hey, we are going to be the exclusive negotiator on your behalf, right, for these group licensing NIL deals. Oh, and by the way, we're also going to be the exclusive negotiating partner for the athletes at your schools who, quote unquote, choose to opt in to have us work with them or work for them. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Sure. It's like kind of is, kind of isn't. But again, they're not agents and they're not unions. And those are the two types of entities in the sports space that directly represent the interests of players. And these are not that. Sure. 
can, can we hammer in for a second on this idea of a players union existing on the college level? So you mentioned that it seems like the hurdle to overcome is that these athletes, even with NIL, are still not considered professionals. They still have a label of amateurs on them. And with that, they're not allowed by the Supreme Court ruling or by the NCAA to form a union. Like, it, it seems to me like that would be the best path forward. But, uh, you know, explain, walk me through that. Yeah. So it's basically really a question of like federal labor law. Um, so, okay. The short way to explain this is, so if you remember in 2014, the Northwestern football team tried to unionize. Okay. Yes. The way you unionize, right, is you go to the national, if you are a pri- in the private sector, okay, in the public sector, it's like through your state and your city, whatever, private sector, you go to the National Labor Relations Board and you say, you know, we are an entity of employees who under the United States labor laws are eligible to form a union and we would like to form a union and we would like you to recognize us as a union, right? The Northwestern players tried that. Ultimately, the NLRB did not rule in their favor, not because the NLRB didn't think that they could be employees, but because the NLRB was concerned that if they gave the Northwestern players a union, all the public school athletes wouldn't be able to form a union because the NLRB doesn't have jurisdiction over the public sector, right? Okay. So that's who makes this decision. There is another case currently winding through the NLRB right now that theoretically would apply to public and private school athletes. That could be a deciding factor about whether there could be a union. There's a hearing in November. If federal labor law finds that there can be a union, you know, that athletes are employees and or are eligible to form a union, right, then there are organizations kind of floating around who are like ready to to be that sure right um yeah but really it's it's just a question of and then there's also a, a federal court case about whether or not athletes are deemed employees and if they're deemed employees then they could great they're employees then they could go to the nlrb if this other case doesn't work out it's very complicated but like multiple people are trying to get it to happen is my point. i completely understand so you know, as you describe this, it really seems like the Wild West, like the, the Supreme Court set this whole NIL domino into motion. And now we just have to play defense. And, you know, just like all these organizations are just, as you described, filling a power vacuum that wasn't really planned around. Um, I don't want to to go through this conversation without talking about EA, because I do not think they're without fault in this whole ordeal. And, and I think one of the enticing parts of this story to a lot of people are the, the numbers that you report on, like the, the reported payouts for individual athletes. And, and I remember seeing um, early on in your reporting, the one team partners talk about how each athlete across all division one schools would be paid the same. And, and that immediately struck me that that was the first time admittedly my flags went up that saying, I don't think this game is going to come out in 2024 or as smoothly as EA is, is assuming just because it seemed like there would be some natural tension in, in thinking that you know, Caleb Williams would be making as much money as the backup punter on James Madison University. So can you talk a little bit about this payout structure that EA proposed? You talked about how it was an offer. I don't know if there was negotiations back and forth. It's obviously hard to negotiate when there's not one central body representing all collegiate athletes. But can you talk about this offer and maybe, you know, against the backdrop of how EA works with the NFL? Because I understand that that relationship looks a little differently than a lot of people might assume. Right. So, um, 
The Brandar Group spoke with EA, and the Brandar Group told me that they raised concerns with what EA was considering as far as a pay structure went, like, over the last couple of years while they were sort of mulling all this over. At this point, they there there's no, like, negotiations between anyone. It's just, like, EA is paying one team to, like, figure out how much they should pay the athletes. Um mm structure like you said that has been reported not confirmed on the record by anyone um but some of my fabulous um you know i guess counterparts at other outlets have reported that it's like more or less going to be a 500 check per athlete plus no royalties okay um so the issue is not that all the athletes would be paid the same amount um that's actually pretty standard as far as a video game goes like, no matter okay. how famous you are. The only difference, my understanding, would be, like, the athletes who are featured on the cover get paid extra. Um, that's not the problem. The problem is, and even the $500 sign-up check isn't the problem. The problem is the lack of royalties. Because in every professional sports video game, and every video game that represents real human beings who actually exist in the world, you have to pay them royalties. That's the industry standard, period, full stop. And that's where the money is, right? Those are five-figure checks that these kids could be getting multiple times a year, right? Or at least once a year, however, depending on however often they want to send out royalties checks, right? They could be making those, those royalties for the rest of their lives as long as the game is being sold. So the $500 check, that's not the issue. And that's what EA is trying to say is the issue. EA is trying to say... Well, you know, they've gone to other outlets and said, oh, well, you know, we haven't decided how much we're paying the athletes. So, like, don't judge us on the $500 thing. And it's like, well, you haven't disputed the fact that you're not paying royalties and that's what you pay literally everybody else. And that's where the money is. Sure. Do, do you think that comes and I'm now asking you to put on some tinfoil hat here, but do you think that just comes with the territory of assuming these athletes don't have the same amount of leverage as an NFL PA does, you know, assuming that's who EA is negotiating with at the NFL level. Yeah. They don't have anyone to negotiate with. And that's not EA's fault, right? They they don't have anyone to negotiate with. So they're setting sure. the standard. It's a take it or leave it deal. So they're not incentivized to make it a good deal unless the athletes choose not to opt in. Yeah. So as you've been so kind to lay this all out for me, I can only imagine as a student athlete how overwhelming this must be. You know, I, I don't know what their communication channels are like at their schools. It's likely that the schools probably don't even know what's going on and what late re- latest reports are true and not true. It, it's very possible that your reporting is being relied on by a lot of school administrators and student athletes specifically to understand what is going to happen in something that really affects their life. As, as we talk about, like having your name, image, and likeness represented now should be something that you can profit off, off of and, and make, you know, hopefully significant amount of money. But the fact that there seems to be all this obscurity wrapped around it um, is probably really frustrating as an athlete. Have you talked or or heard of any athletes, like what they're getting communicated to how much, you know, how much they know and just what their general sentiment is about this whole thing? Yeah. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of athletes over the last couple of years, just about NIL in general, general, and there's such a huge disparity in knowledge. Like there's such a big knowledge gap. There are athletes who have become so like savvy with NIL that they have gone on post-college to make careers in the space, right? 
And then there are athletes who have like never done any deals because they didn't know they could. They they didn't understand it. They didn't think that anyone would want to pay them, which if any athlete is seeing this, I don't care who you are. Someone wants to pay you. So like look into that, um, yeah. you know, but it's it's really difficult. And they don't a lot of them don't have the resources, right? Like to you need like agents and lawyers to do these sorts of deals. And a lot of athletes don't have that. So, um, you know, I would say by and large, unless you're a big name, like with a deal like EA, you're thinking to yourself, maybe $500 is better than none, right? And they're all going to have to decide whether or not they want to just take this sort of meager check that they're being given or they want to try to hold out for a better deal. But that, but then again, like that assumes that they know that there could be a better deal. I didn't know like industry standard and like I cover this, like I didn't learn about that until I started covering this. Right. So, right. I mean, they might not even know what they're missing. Yeah. Where does this deal stand now? So it came out that EA still suspects or expects the game to be out in 2024 next summer. Um, mm-hmm. I remain skeptical. It seems like there's a lot of hurdles that they have to overcome. You know, what would yeah. a timeline on a lawsuit like this be? Is this a lawsuit that needs to get sorted out before the game is allowed to move forward? Like, where do we stand with this game actually coming out on time? I mean, look, they say it's coming out on time. Um, again, like, it's like I'm not an, uh, an expert on, like, how long it takes to, like, make avatars and stuff. But what I can also tell you is, like, they haven't even started offering the deal to the players so to nail in really quickly on the lawsuit that the Brander Group has filed for, they claim to represent, or maybe they do represent, 54 Division One schools. And as you describe, their representation of those schools also allows them to represent those athletes that um, you know uh, uh, go to those schools in the case of them being in this game. So what, you know, it, it's maybe it's not obvious, but to me, I assume that they're getting some chunk of change that's flowing from EA to the athletes, you know, acting as a mediary there. Um, is this enforceable? Like, again, it seems like they just kind of stepped in and said, okay, we're representing you. I assume they have some contract or contractual obligations with the schools, but like, is it enforceable that, you know, they're the ones that get to represent the school or could EA say, no, we're going to work directly with them? Like, how do you see this all shaking out and do they have a leg to stand on here? I suppose. Yeah. I mean, so one industry source I spoke with said they might not have a leg to stand on, particularly because, you know, a school can't sign away representation for an athlete's NIL on the athlete's behalf. But maybe there is an argument that the athlete, you know, that the contracts are valid if the athlete opted into the contract through the brand or group. But then my question is, well, how many of those athletes at these football players at these schools actually did that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually waiting for an answer on that question. Um, so I definitely think that, like, it's possible they have a leg to stand on. But again, this industry source also said, well, you know, it often in, like, the way that these sorts of, like, landscape issues work is if there's not one entity that, that represents everybody, then, like, this claim may not really be valid because who is to say the brander group or one team or somebody else you know what i mean so it's really going to be up to the courts um clearly ea thinks that the brander group is extraneous like like you know obsolete not important um and the brander group thinks otherwise so we'll have to see i mean 
The other thing is, is they could just settle and then we won't get an answer to this question. Um, the Brander group might just get some money. But if there is some sort of decision, then theoretically we would get an answer to this question. Sorry that that's like super inconclusive, but that's the way they reporting on cases works, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured. So I, I teased earlier that we we're going to come back to this, but I want to know as you now consider this, which I think is one of the more public cases about how NIL has affected college athletics writ large. Like, what do you, how would you describe or categorize the state of NIL in college athletics today? Because to me, this example seems to really indicate that there's a lot of things that we have yet to figure out as a country, like saying NIL is open for business was never going to be good enough. So, you know, what do you think this shows or explores about, you know, how how NIL is working today? I think what this shows is that, I mean, look, NIL is a good thing, period, full stop, right? I don't want anybody to say that the issues with it mean that it's not you know, that it should never have happened because that's definitely not the case. Um, everyone is benefiting from it. But what I think this issue shows is that not allowing athletes to have certain representation and certain rights that professional athletes do, right, by the definition of being a professional, there are there is a lot of opportunity for exploitation. There is a power vacuum. There are bad actors, good actors, mediocre actors, right? But at the end of the day, everybody's looking to get, you know, a cut of the profit. Everyone is jockeying for their own position in the space. So without collective bargaining and without the ability for athletes to represent themselves through a union or something like that, um, you know, they're, they could still be taken advantage of, like, that is the that is the base issue I see in NIL is that a lot of these kids do not have the resources to not be taken advantage of. I do not, however, I'm concerned about what the solutions would be for that, though, because the NCAA president also talks about that. And while I agree with him on principle, I'm concerned that he's going to use that as a way to try to exert more control over the athletes than the NCAA deserves, right, to, to quote, under the guise of, quote, unquote, protecting them. So um, that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm concerned about. Um, but, yeah, power vacuum is the key term, in my opinion. Awesome. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for walking us all through this. I, I will continue to follow your reporting. Um, I would encourage everybody else to go do so. Follow Amanda on Twitter is where I've been seeing a lot of the really good stuff. Um, Amanda Kristovich, and, of course, she writes for Front Office Sports. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh I will continue to follow all of this as it plays out. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, Tyler. So on this this segment, uh, I want to pull in some inspiration from trading cards and have us pick something that's that's one of one. Um, we each have one selection for this moment. It's kind of similar to a draft, but also dissimilar to a draft because we're only drafting one thing. So if, if, if you were a team, you would basically have to put all of your marbles into this singular pick. Um, to, to get it started, I naturally picked a very confusing topic to start with, and I wanted us to pick a one-of-one one moment of the thing that happened outside of the whistle. So something connected to sports that did not happen on the playing field. So something that would happen on the playing field, as an example, the catch. Something that didn't happen on the playing field, as an example, um, the guy that caught that ball at the Cubs game. What, I forget whatever his name sure. was. So that would be Steve Barman. Yeah, yep. that would be a really great example. So 
Would you like to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Uh, I'll go first. Uh, my so I this was an interesting thought experiment. Uh, it really relied on my sports fandom. These aren't really things that you could like look up and reference online. No. It's kind of stuff that you had to experience personally. But I did feel like that was a good filter for picking these moments mm-hmm. because if I had to rack my brain a lot for them, they probably wouldn't be the one of one moment that I needed. So my one of one moment, the trading card that I would buy stock in essentially was how I was thinking about it was the Michael Jordan I'm back press release announcement. Mm. And the reason I picked this is because this this is like a, a, a format, a meme format essentially that has transcended time. Like most of the people that reference this meme these days online were not alive or were not aware of it when it happened in the late 90s. But the at the time, earth shattering release that was Michael Jordan announcing in a simple press release, two words, I'm back, coming out of retirement, was a huge deal and led to a couple more championships for the Chicago Bulls. But secondarily, it is a a format or a sentiment. It, it's kind of like evolved into this, you know, meme format slash sentiment slash like really cool thing to say that has transcended time and still very much plays today. So if I could make one trading card, it would be Michael Jordan's press release saying, I'm back as he comes out of retirement. That is a wonderful selection. Uh, normally, I would try to disparage your selection as much as I possibly could because I feel that it is my obligation. Um, I think your selection was far superior to my selection, <laughs> actually. Thank you. And yours is a yours is a really great moment. I I went for the shock factor on mine, um, and this is a this is a moment that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. But for for those that are, it is. Um, incredible. So my selection for the one of one moment on things that happened in sports outside of the sports themselves, this is a halftime promotion. It is mm. a monkey riding a dog. E. Have you ever seen okay. those videos? I have. And I'll, like, I'll, I'll lay the groundwork for people. I did a lot of research into what NFL halftime shows were like before the spectacle that we understand today, which is like an entire concert. And if I remember correctly, this was in the era of NFL halftime shows where they really didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And they were willing to roll anybody out there. At one point, there was an Elvis impersonator, not the real Elvis, an Elvis impersonator that performed at the NFL halftime show. So was, was this during that era, Jake, of like just crazy shit the NFL was trying to do? It, it absolutely was. Um, I think it actually started with the rodeo. So they would just put a little monkey on the dog and... Put him in there in between the the the, the bull riding sessions, uh, but it was just an iconic moment for me. The 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 runner up that I had to this, I I think I, this is just a monkey summer for me. I don't know why I'm so interested in monkeys right now, but the the runner up for me was Jack the the chimpanzee. You ever see the movie MVP Most Valuable Primate? I have not. Okay, so this is iconic. So take 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 the concept of monkey riding a dog get rid of the dog and put skates on the monkey. This the, the monkey could actually skate and hold a stick and shoot the puck. It was actually insane. And th- that happened in the movie, but it also happened outside the movie during like inner like between period intermissions at hockey games. It, the the most incredible thing. The chimpanzee's name is Jack. So, that that would, <laughs> well, that that would be my one of two moment. Got it. I I'll list off some other honorable mentions that I had. Um one was Marshawn Lynch saying, I'm just here so I won't get fined. Great moment. Another line that seems to stand the test of time. 
Um, I had LeBron's The Decision. I, I think the the ripples that that had across just the NBA, like not only as a you know a, a spectacle on TV, but just as what it meant for player movement was pretty big. Um, two more serious notes: I had Jackie Robinson appearing for the Dodgers, or maybe you could say getting signed by the Dodgers mm-hmm. if you wanted to relate it to outside the whistle. Um, George Bush's pitch on 9/11, or the game after 9/11. You know my infatuation with that and how he ripped it right down the middle. Yeah. Um, and my my last one, and I was doing some reading out this morning because I. You know, knew it existed, but didn't really know much about it. Was Jesse Owens going to the Olympics in 1936? So cool. In which he, as an African American man who was still heavily discriminated against in his own country, went to Nazi Germany and proceeded to win what was at the time a record for gold medals. And um, it was, you know, a really cool representation of like America at the time, even though he wasn't even welcome back to America with open arms, really given the time. But it was like a crazy moment in history where you know he like stood face to face with you know the most the greatest the Nazi regime. yeah 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 right so yeah crazy yeah any honorable mentions from you my honorable mention was jack chimpanzee that's all i've got you you had far superior selections on on this one i think <laughs> well that we'll let the people decide um I, it would be it'd be cool maybe we'll have to do this create some sort of like training card graphic for for our moments i think i would just like to see a monkey riding a dog or a dog riding a monkey whichever we'll have to we'll have to link the video we'll have to link the video we'll have the mcfarland put it in the description whip whiplash whiplash the cowboy monkey (laughs) whiplash the cowboy monkey all right well that's it for this week we'll be back next week with more in sports and business thank you to aaron and ryan mcfarland for putting that link in the description and for producing this episode we'll see you all next week (laughs) 